Hi folks, it's Kean here. Uh, this is Wide Atlantic Weird, the Irish Fortean show that's critical but not cynical. As usual, you find me here at the Cabin in the Woods, located somewhere in the southeast of Ireland. And uh, as you join me upon this occasion, I'm getting ready for a story all about cryptozoology and adventurers of the early 1900s. So uh, picture me wearing my old khaki vest with my old uh, Panama hat slung in the back of the chair and of course in front of me here on the desk are oldie timey maps of the uncharted wilderness of South America such as it was round about the year 1900. Surrounding me of course are the heads and pelts of various animals captured on safari uh, as we were about to tell a tale about a doughty gentleman going out into the wilds looking for animals supposed to be extinct. Or do you? Perhaps you find me uh, clad in a smoking jacket with a pipe and uh, a fine glass of sherry in front of me, surrounded by books and old tomes, because actually this is an episode all about Victorian-era ghost stories. Well, the truth is both, because this is the tale of the surprisingly named Hesketh, Hesketh Pritchard, the man who wrote the Flaxman Low occult detective stories and his search for the supposedly extinct Mylodon in the cryptozoological expeditions of the early 20th century. And here to join me for this fantastic smorgasbord of wide Atlantic weird type tropes is, of course, Eddie Guimont. Who else could I ask? Who else could I bring on for something of, of this magnitude? We had a great conversation all about Hesketh Pritchard and his search for the Mylodon and a little bit of occult ghost stories in there as well for good measure. Now, as always, you can say hi over on Twitter. I'm still there at Strange Ireland. I'm still on Instagram where I am wide underscore Atlantic underscore weird. And I am on the Mastodon, which I suppose is is appropriate as we're talking about, um, you know, Pleistocene era giant mammals. Um, I think I'm doing this correctly. You can find me there at Wide Atlantic Weird at home.social. Uh, if I'm incorrect there and I'm just getting used to that new setup, I'm sure some clever person out there will be able to tell me how to do it correctly. And my beer for this episode... I do have a fine glass of sherry, but I will pu push that aside just for now because I was looking for a beer with monsters in it and one that was Irish. So I went to Trouble Brewing, who are a fine company, and they have a beer called Little Monster Pale Ale. I'm just going to read the description here. A little monster indeed. This bright and refreshing pour from Trouble Brewing crew is packed full of Sabro, Mosaic, Azaka and Eldorado hops. So, you know, it's going to be a fruity citrusy beast 3.5 percent now long-time listeners will know i'm not really a man for your east coast style fruity citrusy beasts however i did want something with a monstrous theme so hopefully it'll go down well while you listen to the story of hesketh hesketh pritchard and the search for the mylodon let's get to it oh and uh, do stick around until the end for some very very exciting housekeeping news i think it will be exciting to all uh, listeners or fans of monstrous podcasts okay let's get to we it we are certain that satanism exists it's the practice of evil and following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object you will prove the existence of the bigfoot or sasquatch by bringing in a body my name's uh, Eddie Guimont. I'm assistant professor of history at Bristol Community College in Fall River, Massachusetts, uh, author of a number of uh, historical works on various uh, cryptozoological and uh, pseudo-historical uh, studies, I guess we could say. Uh, a book coming out uh, in the summer of, uh, I say, summer of 2023 for future listeners on H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and Astronomy, which I co-wrote with uh, Horace Smith, uh, and working on a book on the Flat Earth Theory and History, which is my seeming like, I think this is now the fourth year in a row I've been slowly working on it. So it will come out at some point. I've got over 150 pages written as of now, but it's just it's one of those slow things where you have to work on that when you have time in between uh, uh, actual work. <laughs> Wonderful. So we're going to cover something I've been looking to cover for a long time. And this is a, a strange um, mix of two things which are usually quite different, which I think we both enjoy. And, and certainly I, I, I'm excited to talk about this. Um, so, so this is the story of a Victorian writer and traveler by the name of with, with the unusual name of Hesketh, Hesketh Pritchard. Um, and his eventual search for the supposedly extinct, but perhaps not, um, giant ground sloth, the Mylodon, in Patagonia in South America. Now, before we get to this, 
I'm going to say that before I came across this story, I mostly knew this fellow because he wrote ghost stories. And in particular, he wrote occult detective stories uh, during the 1890s. And this is, um, I suppose, a subgenre that I've always been very interested in. I don't know if you have a history with this at all, but I think anyone who likes Victorian ghost stories should be familiar with this kind of uh, subset of them where you have a recurring character who is a professional to some degree in either identifying or uh, indeed uh, confronting ghosts. <laughs> yes, I like uh, the character is a Flaxman Lowe is the character's name. And I think I'd kind of it's one of those figures I've kind of vaguely heard about. Like, I think maybe I was confusing him with Karnacki, which uh uh, was uh, that was William Hope Hodgson, I think, who yep. wrote that. But uh, yes, I have not read personally any Flaxman Lowe stories, but I, I had that kind of vague knowledge of it. Uh, I think he co-wrote them with his mother. And again, his mother, he's kind of a, a close figure with him. A interesting kind of his early biography, which maybe I'll talk about in a second. But since we're starting with Flaxman Lowe, uh, I'll say I haven't read any of this. But looking it up on Wikipedia, of course, it's des- or the characters described like this. And says Flaxman Lowe is a pseudonym for, quote, one of the leading scientists of the Victorian era whose real name is not disclosed in the stories. He was an accomplished athlete in his youth and has turned his interest to a scientific study of the occult. So maybe this is a result of me having read too much League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. But immediately I thought, is Flaxman Lowe, you know, and obviously this wouldn't work given when the respective stories were written, but is Flaxman Lowe a pseudonym for Professor Challenger? That's immediately what came to mind. And I, mean, I think the stories were written maybe like 10 or 15 years before uh, The Lost World. But it did make me think like I'm su- actually I was surprised. I don't think anyone has kind of gone with that. But it did seem like that. That seems like it might be a natural fit. Seems like something Alan Moore would have come up with uh, in, yeah. in the League books for sure. So I'm I'm a big fan of the occult detective subgenre. I've, I know I've recommended this before. My favorite short piece of writing as an introduction to this is by Grady Hendrix, who um, is a horror writer and, and people will probably know him from Paperbacks from Hell, which is which is great fun. It's a really fun book. But literally my favorite piece of writing Grady Hendrix has done is, is a, it's an old article. It's from 2013 from Tor.com and it's called The Terrible Occult Detectives. And he takes he takes some of the most famous ones. So he takes um, the, there's a standard kind of history of this genre that you normally get. And I know I've done this before myself and I know I've presented it in this way and I've recently learned there's more to it. But you'll usually hear that, you know, one of the original um, psychic detectives or at least the prototype of it is from uh, Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu when he wrote Green Tea and, and various other short stories which were collected in uh, Through a Glass Darkly, I think in 1872. And he's he was Irish or Anglo-Irish, so I think I'll mention that. And so he has a character called Dr. Martin Heselius, who usually doesn't take a direct role in these stories. He's more of a commentator, um, but he... You know, he he is the only recurring character. He's kind of like a framing device for various stories of the supernatural. And so the idea that this recurring character who has an expertise in the supernatural to some degree, you know, that's a relatively early version of it uh, where, where the character is, is somewhat formed. And I, I, like I'll say, Green Tea uh, being the most famous and probably the best and the most fun short story out of that collection. But Grady Hendrix is really funny in this article where he rips all these detectives apart and points out how awful they are and how, how terrible, how you would never want to consult them because they'll either ignore you or be um, really condescending to you or will blow up your house or whatever to defeat the ghosts. And so, so he covers Martin Aselius and he covers Flaxman Lowe, who coming along in the 1890s, it's kind of late in the game, but he's one of them. He is still one of the earliest fully formed ones, like a, a, a guy who whose job it is is to track down ghosts and does this repeatedly and has the expertise to do it. And just to be complete, he does mention he has some funny things to say about William Hope Hodgson's uh, Karnacki, the ghost finder, who's a little bit later. I think he's 1910s thereabouts. Um, and so it, it's absolutely worth a look. And for those willing to go. The, the extra mile, please check out Brom Bones Books, which is the writing of Tim Prezel. And he has an article called The Chronological Bibliography of Early Occult Detectives. And he, he takes his genre right back to 1817, uh, the 1830s and 40s. And he has an insanely thorough breakdown of like, what does he consider it to be an occult detective? What does that mean? And so by by whose definition, you know, are you using when you go back in time and say who the first one was? It's it's loads of fun. So I put all that stuff 
um, in the notes. But when you when you read about this stuff normally, they usually say that Martin Stelius from Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu is kind of one of the first solid early entries. And then you've got, I mean, just before Flaxman Low, you've got in Dracula, of course, another another Irish novel. You've got um, Abraham Van Helsing's kind of fits the bill in that he's he's a doctor but he has knowledge of the occult and it's implied that he's dealt with it before and um you know in, to some degree he fits the bill and then you've got flaxman low appears in pearson's magazine in, in about 12 stories between 1898 and 1899 as you said written by this fellow um uh, hesketh hesketh pritchard and his mother whose real name was kate o'brien royal pritchard uh but they go under the pseudonyms of h heron and e heron and um they're kind of presented as though they're real ghost stories, which uh, seems to have both amused him, surprised him, and perhaps kind of annoyed him. Uh, but it was common enough at the time, and there are illustrations by one B.E. Mins, and they're, they're worth a look. I'll see if I can put a link to one of the blog posts that I used um, as reading material to get those pictures in there. So he shows up relatively late in the game, 1890s, um, and actually slightly after uh, Professor Van Helsing in, in Dracula, who was kind of a slightly earlier example. Yeah, so uh, Pritchard himself, uh, he, so he's, I guess he would, I'm assuming he would probably consider himself English, although his background is somewhat twisted given, you know, a lot of the vagaries of kind of, uh, uh, the British Empire at the time. So he's born in India in 1876. His father was born in England, but was of mixed Welsh-Irish descent and serving in a Scottish regiment at the same time, which I think really shows the great example of how the empire kind of, you know, creates a British identity out of all the very so nationalities within, you know, uh, the British Isles themselves. Uh, his mother's father was a major general who had distinguished himself. I think not, not quite during the great rebellion in the 1850s, but I think fighting after that also. Uh, and that his father's side comes from kind of, or, uh, I think like his, like, uh, father's mother's side technically comes from kind of like the Anglo-Irish Protestant uh, nobility in Ireland. So he has this very uh, kind of like storied uh, uh, background. Uh, his father actually died six weeks before he was born uh, in his biography. Uh, I guess he drank water downstream from a farm and caught typhoid and died. So that's uh, a bit of a good uh, or illustration of how uh, you know sanitation is a good thing. Uh, uh, and it's interesting too. Uh, his parents were born in January. He was, or his parents were married in January. He was born in November. So that's tight timing, but it still fits in. So it's especially for you know late Victorian era. It's good that timing works out. Uh, but yeah, so uh, after uh, you know he's born, he goes back to England with his mother. Uh, uh, he's you know raised there in February 1897. He I think he had already published a number of stories. Uh, He's invited to a dinner party by one of his publishers, Reginald Smith, there uh, at that dinner party, at least from what I, at least according to his biography. This seems like very much a big coincidence, but maybe it's uh, maybe it's true. You know, stranger things have happened. He meets and befriends these two important figures. Arthur Conan Doyle is one of them. And uh, Arthur Pearson, uh, Cyrus Arthur Pearson, a.k.a. Cyrie, as I guess he was called, uh, the publisher. And it's there where uh, Cyrie uh, commissions Pritchard to write. Uh, the ghost stories for Pearsons, which becomes Flaxman Low. And so it is interesting that, you know, there's that one dinner party there. He meets Doyle. He meets Pearson, kind of uh, his future, uh, you know, uh, uh, it, stories kind of come out of that experience right there. So I've got an article by, well, it's from a blog called Grey Dog Tales. And there is a, a series of articles really about, about Hesketh Pritchard. There's one called Casting the Prunes. Which is obviously a pun on casting the runes, the the Mr. James story, and um, but there's some. Basically, it, it talks about how, like, it, well, firstly, um, his nickname in school and college was Hex, which is hilarious. Yeah, and he played cricket with the Authors Cricket Club, and on this team was Arthur Conan Doyle, A. E. W. Mason, who wrote the the Prisoner in the Opal, which is a, a an occult novel, uh, and J. M. Barry, who who writes Peter Pan, and he's That's advised. Right to take up writing by none other than Conan Doyle, who gifts him um, her Sherlock Holmes illustrations drawn by Sidney Pagett, the classic Sherlock Holmes yeah. artist. So this guy is in the thick of, you know, these, uh, of the, the, the 19th century writer's milieu. This is, this is great stuff. 
yes, yeah, if that's like, just goes to show if you're, you know, the grandson of a major general, a lot of doors open for you. <laughs> yes, wish we were all that lucky. <laughs> and, and that is not the first nor the second Arthur Conan Doyle nor Professor Challenger connection. I think we're yeah. going to find in, in this story as, as we're shortly off to look for extinct animals in Indeed. in South America. So Heskett's Pritchard gets a reputation for his travel books. Yeah, and uh, so uh, in 1900, Pearson launches the Daily Express newspaper. He needs something to get readership. Uh, so he recruits uh, uh, Pritchard to go on an expedition to Haiti because he figures, you know, uh, this is something that's kind of you know, exotic at the time. Haiti, uh, this is less than a century since Haiti became independent. Uh, again, just, you know, as a brief you know, summary for those who don't know, the Haitian Revolution lasts from I think it's 1791 to 1804. It's the first successful slave revolution. Also, after the American Revolution, it's the second successful uh, kind of like a colonial independence movement from European powers. Uh, after Haiti becomes an independent black republic in 1804, it's kind of held off at arm's length by uh, the Americans, the British, uh, the French for a long time for obvious reasons. You know, they don't like an independent black country. They also especially don't like uh, uh, a model for like slave rebellions. South American republics, as they emerge, have closer relations with Haiti. But really, by the time uh, uh, Pearson launches his magazine, there's been kind of relations, you know, between Haiti for around 75, 70 years or so with Europe. And it's still you know, not seen in a very positive light. Uh, and so, uh, uh, you, you see the story uh, mentioned. I don't know how true it is, but it's, it's brought up like kind of in his book, uh, in his uh, biography, that uh, Hesketh Pritchard becomes the first European to walk across Haiti since its independence from France, which maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. He used this to write a travelogue. It's uh, uh, seen as like this expose of voodoo, which at the time is still, you know, not really well understood by whites. Uh, and, you know, this is several decades before Haitian uh, religions, Haitian society starts to be seriously studied by uh, particularly by Americans. You have a uh, 1929 William Seabrook's The Magic Island, which, uh, again, kind of a very similar travelogue, which is notable for introducing the idea of zombies. Uh, I think even like the word zombie in the English language comes like that. You have Melville J. Herskovitz and Zora Neale Hurston in the early 1930s who kind of are the first uh, Americans. Uh, Herskovitz is white, uh, Hurston is black to do kind of a academic work on voodoo in the United States. And you have Henry J. Whitehead, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's friend, who had written some uh, uh, voodoo-related stories, uh, uh, not from Haiti, but from the Virgin Islands uh, in the early 1920s. But uh uh, this is before all of them. And uh, interestingly, I said his book was called Where Black Rules White, which I think kind of gives, you know, kind of the sensationalist sense, there, especially because there aren't really whites in Haiti at the time. So it is playing a bit into the kind of, you know, fear of, you know, like white slavery trope at the time. Uh, it includes some sensationalist claims like uh, there's child sacrifice and cannibalism and voodoo rights, which I don't think is accurate. But again, you can kind of see why. Uh, Pritchard would publish this uh, and his uh, uh, reporting on this. Uh, there's a lot of stuff about how, you know, he's like simultaneously in mortal danger walking across Haiti, but also, you know, very respected by the black Haitians. Of course, uh, uh, it sells a lot. And obviously the Daily Express survives uh, for good or ill. <laughs> Arguably, you know, it has this uh, initial like infusion of this uh, historic stories. Uh, after uh, his Haitian trip, he returns to England. Shortly after, uh, uh, he's summoned by Pearson again for a second expedition. Uh, and I think Pearson is the one who suggests the Mylodon search uh, to Pritchard, which again uh, shows that the Mylodon, the idea of this giant ground sloth surviving in South America, was already pretty uh, uh, in the air at the time. Uh, so. <laughs> And so for this section of the story, uh, as a reference, I turn to my my well-thumbed copy of Bernard Heuvelman's On the Track of Unknown Animals. 
uh, originally in the French, I think from 1958 or 1955, yes. translated yeah, yeah. English in, in 58. My version, sadly, is slightly abridged from the 1960s, but I'm reliably informed that it's only technical information and bibliographical information that was taken out. And um, rather tellingly, he opens this chapter with the following quote, which is, Now down here in the Mato Grosso, he swept his cigar over a part of the map or up in this corner where three countries meet, Nothing would surprise. This, of course, being a quote from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World, which <laughs> should give us an idea of what we're in for in, in this section of the story. <laughs> yes, yeah, and uh, I, I apologize to any uh, listeners, but I'm going to have to indulge in my uh, you know, uh, historian teaching mode for a second. I think there has to be a, a, a bit of background of uh, not just the idea of the Mylodon, but just the situation in South America at this time. Uh, so you get a little taste of what it would be like to be my students. But yeah, for those who know, Mylodons is a species of a giant ground sloth distantly related uh, to the megatherium that people like Jefferson and Cuvier in the late 18th century thought were still uh, in existence in the American West. But the European kind of discovery and identification of Mylodon remains happens in 1836 from Richard Owen, a guy who invents the term dinosaur, who uh, he's at the Natural History Museum in London. Uh, the HMS Beagle expedition has just returned from, you know, its exploration or its uh, you know, voyage across South America and the South Pacific. A certain crew member called Charles Darwin acquired the remains of the Mylodon in Argentina during the Beagle expedition drops it off to Owen, who identifies it you know, as this giant ground sloth. Short, like Within a few years of this, uh, in the late 1830s, in what at the time was kind of the American frontier in Missouri and Mississippi, there are these remains of mylodons that are found uh, in soil layers that include stone implements, remains of fire ash, indicating they've been butchered and cooked. Uh, there's no indication of dates, but uh, these uh, remains, there's one in uh, Gasconade County, Missouri, another in Mississippi referred to as Natchez Man for the, the human remains that are found with it. Uh, these then become seen as, you know, uh, you know, they're heavy in the ideas of not only the antiquity of humans, but, you know, the antiquity of Native American culture, which at the time, you know, was still widely debated. I know, like, oh, did Native Americans you know, exist back then? When exactly were the Americas settled by humans? So mylodons, right after they're first identified, are very heavily involved in these debates in North America, particularly uh, the United States. And these there's interesting examples of mylodon finds even into the late 1800s. Uh, I found in 1890 there is in Nevada uh, there is these giant footprints that are found that are identified as antediluvian giants. And Othniel Marsh of the Peabody Museum comes and says, "Oh, these are actually mylodon footprints." So you know, even into the 1890s, you still have uh, these ideas. You know, Interesting ways in which uh, uh, mylodons are kind of uh, coming involved at this point. Uh, so it's you know it's it's a whole bunch of hubbub that's happening. But you know, at the time, there's this belief that uh, you know, human occupation begins crossing the Bering Land Bridge, which actually was controversial at the time. Into I think I think it's really the mid 20th century, almost when the idea of the Bering Land Bridge becomes more established. But basically, the idea is that humans occupied the Americas from uh, you know, north to south, so therefore the very tip of South America, Patagonia, you know, the southernmost tip of modern Argentina and Chile, would have been settled last. This is important, too, because a lot of people at the time assumed it's humans who have you know, you know, killed off these giant animals. So if humans have reached South America, you know, the very tip of South America last, these giant animals, you know, the charismatic megafauna, probably have existed the longest in the southernmost tip of South America. And uh, Argentina itself was colonized by the Spanish in the 1500s. Uh, it gained its independence from Spain in 1816. But it's not until the 1870s that the state of Argentina begins to really effectively exert control over the native peoples of Patagonia, the southernmost region. And uh, in the 1870s, there's this very... Uh, there's a term for which I'm forgetting, but the Argentine army moves in very rapidly, basically exerts control, very bloody repression and massacres of the natives there. So it's in this decade of the 1870s that the Argentine government is basically colonizing Patagonia. 
And along with the army, you also have scientists moving in to kind of, you know, exert Western science, Western knowledge, uh, uh, you know, as part of the state building project. So you get a lot of these natural, you know, history developments, natural uh, science discoveries, along with the Argentine army moving in. Uh, and it's important to note also that uh, even though Argentina is independent at the time, it's in an involvement with the British Empire, what's referred to as kind of the informal empire, the economic empire. And it's Britain has this large informal presence in South America. I mean, around the same time, Percy Fawcett uh, you know, is involved with adjudicating the Brazil-Bolivia border. Uh, as an example of this, also uh, in 1896, Chile and Argentina send delegates to Britain so that the British can adjudicate their national borders. From 1865 until World War I, uh, 10% of Britain's capital outflows are going to Argentina. This is larger than uh, the British capital outflow to India. So it gives you a sense of just how strong the British, you know, uh, the British economy is entwined with Argentina in particular uh, at this time. Uh, you know, it's a good source for guano, good source for beef, good source for uh, uh, naval ports. Uh, uh, the Falklands War is a good Right, legacy of this, of course, so it continues. I was going to say continues into the 20th century, but continues into today and it's, it's still going on. But so this is kind of the wider, uh, you know, historical, scientific, political background to the discovery of, uh, uh, the Mylodon remains in the late, uh, uh, 1800s in Argentina. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. I, I definitely picked up on this secondhand reading. You know, the origin of the species, or, or the, rather the, the voyage of the beagle and, and then, you know, fictional takes on it like uh, this thing of darkness. And again, it's always implied Britain has this great power in South America, but it's never explained, you know, they don't have any colonies there officially. So, so that's, that's very important context for it. And in, in North America and in Europe as well, these ancient creatures, um, are being debated and, and a sort of early cryptozoology is taking form, um, kind of in the name of nationalism. Yeah, it's like, uh, uh, kind of like the famous example of this is uh, uh, with Jefferson in the late 18th century, uh, his debates over the idea of American degeneracy, where, you know, there's no large animals in the Americas, therefore America is, uh, you know, a continent destined for decline, uh, you know, much as, you know, that much as was seen as the time, the North America hadn't produced any great civilizations compared to the old world. So obviously, you know, uh, the lack of great civilizations, the lack of great animals, this meant that, you know, North America in particular, but South America also outside of, you know, the Maya, the Inca, a few little examples down there, obviously couldn't have uh, produced uh, greatness like the old world could. Jefferson says, you know, hold up, not so fast. We found these giant, uh, you know, bones in my, you know, uh, my slaves dug up these, you know, giant bones in the swamp, obviously, you know. Uh, there's some giant animal here. The theory of extinction or the idea even of extinction is not really wide. It's it's uh, some people are beginning to advocate it. But, you know, the idea that things could be alive and then an entire species could vanish. That's not really widely supported at the time. So the idea, you know, if you find these giant bones uh, of some giant animal, obviously they must still be alive somewhere. And so you get ideas, you know, uh, uh, what's called the incognitum, the unknown animal, a.k.a. mastodon, or in some cases I associate with mammoths or uh, a megatherium, could still be alive. And so the search to find no giant living woolly mammoths in the American West became uh, a source of national pride. Lewis and Clark uh, in their famous expedition you know one of the things they're told to look out for, or, you know, like, giant uh, mammoths, basically, uh, and also any, like, white tribes that may have been left over from the Vikings or the Welsh. Uh, actually, the Welsh will pop up again in the story also, interestingly enough. But, uh, yeah, so the, all of these notions of, you know, what we would probably call cryptozoology, uh, you know, pseudo-history, uh, uh, settler colonialism are widely, you know, uh, entailed. Now, that's why, uh, you know, my friend Justin Mullis argued that, uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson should be considered the father of American cryptozoology, which, you know, I think there's a lot to that. I think the, the French Comte de Buffon was one of these fellows as well. Yes. Yeah. I believe that the, the lack of large animals in parts of North America meant that somehow that it was a de degenerate continent, which couldn't possibly be as grand as, as, as the old world, as you say. Um, so I think we better get around to the point at which 
um, kind of Bernard Hubelmans, the, the who usual people who, who is usually considered the father of cryptozoology, um, yeah. <laughs> where in his book on the track of unknown animals, um, he picks up the story kind of um, at the end of the 19th century when some strange finds from Patagonia kind of reignite this concept that these large ground sloths or prehistoric animals might still be alive. Yeah, so it's like starting in the 1870s with, you know, the expansion south uh, of the Argentine state. There are human remains that are found in Patagonia alongside what seem to be obviously butchered or tooled remains of megafauna. Like you have megatheriums, mylodons, glyptodons, which are like these giant armadillos, which if you've ever seen the, the remains of them, I mean, it, it's pretty impressive, you no know, giant fossil shell. But you know, the big uh, flashpoint that emerges is in 1898, uh, uh, when what appear to be remains of mylodon bones attached to what seems like very fresh skin with hair attached are found. I think from what I've read, it's I've seen a few uh, conflicting statements about this. Uh, but what I what I think is the case is there was a road construction and kind of they dug up uh, uh, these remains in Patagonia. And again, it goes with, you know, the process of state building. You got to have roads for, you know, military you know, travel. So. Uh, this, you know, strange hair, skin were found, uh, leading to this Argentine paleontologist named Florentino Amagino, uh, who interestingly was a, a promoter of Lamarckianism, this kind of alternative to Darwinian evolution, which kind of has some cryptozoological aspects of it also, where basically traits get inherited. So kind of like the earmark of a Lamarckianism is that, you know, like, uh, giraffes used to look like horses, but because they keep, you know, stretching their necks to get like higher and higher leaves, their necks stretch. So, you know, these traits get inherited. So, uh, this is widely discredited now, but in, you know, the 19th, late 19th century, there's still some, uh, 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 notions that these existed. And so, uh, Florentino Amagino, uh, seems to identify these, you know, as a mylodon proposes, seems like maybe they must still be alive if the skin and hair are this fresh. Uh, so in this context, he looks for, you know, uh, evidence of similar samples and two come to light from a few years uh, previous. Uh, one from a Swedish explorer uh, uh, and geologist uh, named Otto Nordenskjold, who's kind of a famous polar explorer at the time. And another guy, uh, Francisco Moreno, uh, director of the La Plata Museum in Argentina, which is kind of like natural history museum. Uh, both of whom had found uh, their seemingly fresh skin samples from a cave on farmland owned by a uh, expatriate German military officer. Uh, also, it seems like uh, uh, Chilean naval officers had kind of crossed the border and taken a lot of the uh, 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 samples of the mylodon skin from Argentine territory. So, you know, right off the bat, you have conflicts between the Chilean and uh, uh, Argentine border. You have Swedes coming in and exploring. Uh, you have, you know, this German guy who's just living in Argentina and controlling, you know, this what comes to be seen as like a natural uh, or a national symbol. So, again, you can see how this, you know, colonial frontier of Patagonia bringing in a ton of uh, you know, sources overall. One of my one of the facts that I enjoyed in, in uh, Huvelman's book is he, he mentions that the the skin seems to be it's being used by this German fellow and. Um, uh, e Eberhardt, I think, um, he's using it as like a, like almost like a flag to mark the boundaries of his territory, you know, around his, you know, his hacienda or whatever, as if like he's found it and he doesn't think that much of it. And he just hang he's hanging it from trees, to, you know, yeah. to show people that they're entering his territory. I thought that was entertaining. And eventually and yeah, all these other guys come and just take bits of it until by the time uh, Amagino gets involved, there's almost nothing left. <laughs> and uh, you see this referred to sometimes as like, oh, they found the mylodon skin hanging from a tree. So, you know, the implication being, you know, it must have still been alive. It could have climbed up in the tree and left its skin there. But again, this seems to be a corruption of the guy just basically hanging his skin, you know, in the tree as a flag. And it's just, you know, very funny in you know, this case where, again, the example of how stories get kind of uh, muddled all together. Uh, but anyway, so uh, Amagino finds that Nordenskjold and Moreno both have these uh, samples from this uh, German guy, uh, Eberhard. And so Nordenskjold takes his sample back to Sweden. Zoologists there argue that it's similar but distinct from mylodons. But they make the point where it has to be extinct because there's no way such a large animal could still be living and unnoticed, which, again, is one of those kind of common sense things that, you know, like 
modern day Bigfoot, for example, people don't tend to take this very simple fact where, you know, if there are giant, uh, you know, creatures wandering around, they're going to be kind of obvious. Uh, so the Swedes, you know, they kind of go on a bit of a dead end. Uh, Marino, for his case, he takes his sample to the Zoological Society of London. Uh, Marino himself, he had previously been part of uh, the Argentine delegation uh, to London in 1896 as part of the border dispute with Chile. So he has these contacts in London. In London, Marino advocates the idea that the samples were from a long dead animal, but the members of the Zoological Society advocate the idea that it has to have been recently alive because of the state of the skin. Interestingly, uh, one of the uh, people who advocate for uh, the idea that this skin was from a recently living animal uh, is Arthur Smith Woodward, who will go on to become uh, involved in the Piltdown Man hoax as advocating this. So, again, you have kind of this interesting future uh, uh, connection. Again, kind of a bit of an uh, Arthur Conan Doyle connection because, you know, like Arthur Conan Doyle, as you know, like so many people, who you know, tend to just be alive at the time and get accused of being part of the top-down <laughs> folks. You get that there. Uh, the funny thing is, that I guess, like, one of the samples that Marino had looked like it had kind of like a hole in it. And so uh, Smith Woodward basically argues, like, look, this is a bullet hole, so it has to have been shot, so it must have been this giant creature that was wandering around. And you know, obviously it could have just been a regular hole, or, you know, if the guy's hanging it from his, you know, yard, someone could have just been taking pot shots at it, too. Uh so into this debate, Amagino comes back uh, by advocating that uh, the indigenous, uh, I think I'm pronouncing this right, Tewelche people, who are uh, the indigenous natives of this region of Patagonia, have a legend of a creature called the Yemish or the water tiger. It's kind of always uh, translated into. So he says this uh, Tewelche uh, uh, legendary creature might not even uh, be real, but it might actually even be the living Mylodon. Uh, even Hooverman's on the track of unknown animals. He points out, like, this doesn't really make sense because the description of the water tiger doesn't match really at all with the Mylodon. So, uh, again, showing unusual restraint from uh, <laughs> Hooverman's in this point, you know, having basic common sense there. <laughs> but uh, the one thing that you know, uh, did come to mind, and I didn't mention this before, but uh, Moreno and Amagino had a history together. They had helped develop, a, kind of like build the... Uh, uh, Museum of La Plata. Uh, Marino then fires Amagino. So it seems like there's a lot of bad blood in between those. So I did wonder if Amagino kind of like inserted himself back into this debate with, you know, the ridiculous, you no know, Yemish water tiger story by just being like, you know, a way to try to take Moreno down a peg and maybe also just be like, this is a ridiculous thing. Maybe this is the case. You no. Know, uh, so there, I think there's some bad blood in between them as well. Uh, I couldn't find a lot on Amagino's later life, but Moreno himself seems like uh, after the events of this story went down a very uh, like far right wing uh, trajectory also, which I think also uh, uh, may have colored some of his opinions of uh, like the native uh, legends of creatures. Uh, hmm. uh, but uh, basically this leads to the Argentine geologist Rudolf Hathel, uh leading this follow up expedition uh who proposes that mylodons may have been domesticated in the past and kept in uh, the cave on the German uh, uh, farmland as, you know, sort of like a pen. So this may have been like an ancient enclosure for domesticated mylodons. Uh, Nordenskjold's brother, I forget what his name was, comes back from Sweden, looks around a lot as well. So there's a lot of all of these uh, uh, kind of interesting, you know, like colonial issues that are, you know, expedition or quasi expeditions that are happening even before uh, Pritchard get involved. Uh, but what ends up happening is that Amagino then kind of goes back to early 16th century Jesuit accounts of uh, the early European exploration of the Straits of Magellan. Uh, he finds an illustration of a creature called a Succorath, which uh, is trying to figure out how to describe this. Uh, looks like a, yeah, a thin lion with a giant bushy like squirrel tail going over it and like <laughs> I, I guess a human face you can kind of say uh, which again this does not really connect with what a mylodon would have looked like but he argues this was a distorted depiction of a mylodon and I think if I remember right Hoovelmans kind of comes down on this and says yeah maybe that was true and you know, even Hoovelmans himself ultimately decides you know like maybe mylodons went extinct in Patagonia thousands of years ago 
maybe some still survive in the Amazon. Uh, you know, maybe it's maybe they're living in the city of uh, well, city of Zed. I that sh- I should say for this uh, <laughs> podcast. But you know, uh, uh, interestingly, also I'll say I look through uh, the volumes of the cryptozoology, you know, just cryptozoology, the Journal of the International Society of Cryptozoology, which Hoovelman's uh, was uh, the publisher of. I only found one very brief mention of mylodons. I think it was basically like they're including like a list of like, you know, like 20 possibly still living extinct animals. And so it seems like, you know, even Hoovelman's, uh, much as he wanted to believe, I think even he was basically, uh, uh, not fully on board with the idea that the mylodon might still be alive, uh, at least in Patagonia. But, but into all that, uh, that's kind of the, that's the background of, the expedition that Pearson hires Pritchard to do. You know, like you have the Swedes, you have the Argentines, you have the Germans involved. Obviously, the British have to get involved in, you know, searching out, especially because Argentina is basically their back door. You know, they're unofficial colony, so obviously, uh, you have to get them involved as well. I I enjoyed um, Huberman's comment that uh, Amagino is he's coming up with a name for this creature and he calls it uh, Neomylodon listei. So it's named after a friend of his, um, Ramon Lista, who's who's Argentinian Secretary of State, I believe. Yes. So he's, yeah. a, he's a friend of his and a, and a highly prominent politician who has a story that he was hunting in the jungle and he shot at an animal which he describes as being like a pangolin. So like you know a small quadruped. Um, with a long tail, but it was covered in hair. And so mm, humans is a bit funny about this. I can't quite interpret what he's saying, but he kind of implies that uh, maybe either he Hubelmans or Amargino thought that this was a young, a younger version of the Mylodon because, it, you know, it fits the pattern only a lot smaller. And um, but entertainingly, uh, Hubelman says that uh, this this was a, an unnecessary redundant name for a type of mylodon that had already been classified Glossotherium darwinii, and that in fact he was known for uh, being a little a little trigger happy when it came to describing and naming new species, and he already had a terrible reputation for uh, redundant names at this point in his career. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll come up with uh, some uh, a redundant name as well through the Pritchard uh, uh, expedition as well. But, yeah, it, it did remind me a bit of like the story, like like in the modern day, you get like politicians now. Uh, at least in the U.S., you know, talking about, you know, how they've seen UFOs or whatever. Basically, you know, I think, like, what the UAP is, you know, to, like, the recent U.S. Congress, it seems like uh, uh, the Mylodon was to the Argentine political elite, uh, you know, around the turn of the century. Uh, uh, so he's uh, – uh, Hesketh Pritchard is uh, pitched by Pearson as his, like, second big expedition after he gets back from uh, – uh, Haiti. Now he's off to Patagonia. He publishes this book uh, or the the account of his expedition uh, in a book in 1902 called Through the Heart of Patagonia, which is a, you can read it for free online, Project Gutenberg. And uh, from the introduction, I'll just read uh, what he says right here. During the whole time I spent in Patagonia, I came upon no single scrap of evidence of any kind which would support the idea of the survival of the Mylodon. I hope to have found the Indian legends of some interest in this connection, and I took the utmost pains to sift most thoroughly all stories and rumors that could by any means be supposed to refer to any unknown animal. Of this part of the subject, I have given a full account elsewhere. Uh, and again, he says, you know, uh, animal life is so rare in the forests of the Andes. The idea that a mylodon population could survive makes no sense. So again, you have, you know, it's like the, the ecology can't support big animals. No one has reported seeing these big animals. It's ridiculous to think they live. You have some pretty common set, like modern cryptozoology enthusiasts uh, and UAP enthusiasts, for that matter, could kind of uh, take some lessons from uh, Pritchard. And the, so that's from the introduction of Through the Heart of Patagonia. He does not discuss the Mylodon again until the appendix, which, again, I think gives a sense of uh, uh, what Pritchard thought of this. So, <laughs> uh, uh, But, yeah, in his appendix, he does talk a bit about uh, – an account of the discovery of the skin given by Moreno to the Zoological Society. Uh, he has some digs at Amagino, uh, and you know he uh, has there's like a section of the appendix that's uh, written by Smith Woodward, or it's reprinting uh, his ideas of the uh, uh, mylodon. Uh, interestingly, the last part of the appendix uh, are Pritchard's thoughts on the Tewelche legends of the Yemish, the water tiger, which I think also is useful for illustrating some of Pritchard's. Uh, 
we'll say colonial views in general. He says, in fact, as described by the Indians, the Yemish was scientifically absurd, but the Indian is like a child in many ways and would naturally endow a creature he feared with extraordinary attributes. He then cites a William Winward Reed's 1864 book, Savage Africa, as the best example of travel literature, which shaped his own approach to Patagonia. Uh, in it, there's you know such explanations as Blennies just being a slouched African. So it's again this very you know colonial idea where like these mysterious stories from uh, you know Africa are basically just you know uh, credulous Africans you know uh, instantiating their fears. He says that's the basis for his approach to South America, which again I think is not surprising. But uh, he's he's pretty much laying it all out there what his views uh, of this all are. You know what? Yeah. I've got the same quote here. And um, just before he says this about the um, about like with these kind of naturalistic explanations for, you know, the legends of other cultures, he, he starts out by saying it must be laid down as a general principle that man can originate nothing, that lies are always truths embellished, distorted or turned inside out. He's basically talking about euhemerism, which mm-hmm. was was the last episode where I did. I talked with Justin Mullis about this and um yeah. You know, and 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 he's the primary example that Justin came up with for like euhemerism in, in modern thinking is cryptozoology as typified by Bernard Hubelman, which yep. <laughs> ties it up all up in a nice bow. The idea that you know humans can't invent anything, therefore all legends must have a, a crumb of truth to them, and here it is being used, you know, in in a patronizing colonial sense as well. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's like there's there's a lot to be said about the idea of. Uh, you can't have religious views. Obviously, everything has to be, you know, like based on the fact. I think back to, I, for a separate project, I've been doing some research on uh, uh, Halley's Comet. And you have the idea of, you know, Halley's Comet as the basis for the Star of Bethlehem. And you know, there's this interesting focus. I mean, like this religious experience, the Star of Bethlehem. Oh, it can't just be a religious, you know, issue. It has to have been a supernova or a comet or something. So I think that's, you know, example, a rare example of, uh, I think, Western views of a humorism on their own. <laughs> legends but yeah it is just funny that uh again it's a, a very modern uh uh view of some of this stuff overall and yeah and i think uh uh you know so like you know in so he says also you know, in this spirit i set out for the interior of patagonia and you know although the legends of the indians were manifestly to a large extent the result of imaginative exaggeration yet i hope to find a substratum of fact below these fancies and uh no, uh, finally, after much investigation, I came to the conclusion that Indian legends in all probability refer to some large species of otter. So there, an otter is, the, you know, you have either a water tiger, an otter, uh, that's what the, uh, uh, a giant pangolin, but it's, you know, obviously it's not a, uh, uh, mylodon, but, you know, his, the conclusions otherwise are, uh, a bit, uh, colored, I would say. Although I will say, uh, in, uh, uh, right after he died in 1922, there's a biography about him written uh, in the biography. Uh, the biographer notes that a large number of his crew are uh, German and Welsh settlers in Argentina. And there you have the legend of you know, like the Nazis going to Argentina after uh, World War II. There's a large German and Italian and British population of settlers there before uh, uh, even before World War One. So I think it's also a bit telling that when he gets to Argentina, he's recruiting these, you know, like uh, these more recent northern European settlers to Argentina, not, you know, indigenous people, not as many indigenous, certainly not as many of the Spanish population. Uh, but he's really focusing on these kind of north German uh, settlers to Argentina. So uh, and he complains about how they basically, you know, fail him at every end. So, again, it's you know, <laughs> Pritchard can't fail. He can only be failed, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but again, he, uh, he does succeed in identifying a new species of puma, the puma concolor pearsoni, which he names after Arthur Pearson, which later is, you know, identified as, it's actually just already identified South American cougar. So again, you have kind of that replication there. Uh, even though, uh, Pritchard buys the skin from a local Tewelche, so he doesn't even see a live one himself. But again, you know, he buys the skin from a local native and says, oh, I discovered a new species of puma, which also is not even a new species, which, again, I think kind of shows how some of these uh, uh, imperial views of zoology kind of uh, uh, 
come across overall. Uh, I will say also upon returning from the Mylodon expedition uh, early the next year in 1902, Pearson hires him for kind of like a third, you know, like a like publicity thing. You know, uh, I'll say a third headline generator for the Daily Express. Uh, so, you know, his first one was going to Haiti reporting on voodoo. The second one was going to Argentina reporting on the Mylodon. The, this third expedition to this exotic location is go to Ireland and report on nationalist activity, which, again, I think is a, a great example of how imperialism, cryptozoology have these uh, national issues uh, kind of all bleed out together. I guess the, you know, the Irish nationalists, the Fenians are uh, as exotic as my <laughs> <laughs> 10 out of 10, no notes, as the kids say online. Um, <laughs> Hubelmans is quite sniffy about the end of all this. He says that uh, he describes uh, Pritchard as going home in a huff and having not even gone as far as the cave where the Mylodon remains are supposed to be found. He just gives up um, Ultimate Esperanza, I believe is the name of it. Yeah. And I had a couple of small connections I'd like to make that I picked up along the way. So one of the things I, I remembered from um, talking to Richard Fallon about this on our episode where he spoke about his book about dinosaurs in and prehistoric animals in, in fiction was that there's a couple more <laughs> Arthur Conan Doyle connections which I have to make. So number being as as the Lost World to me is kind of, of like the ground zero for for modern. It's not the earliest, but it's it's like just a very early, perfect account of you know what became 50s and 60s um, cryptozoology for me personally. Um, so Conan Doyle, firstly, uh, promoted and, and and Richard reminded me of this recently. He promoted this case and the, the possibility of the Mylodon being real as late as the 1920s and wrote about this. And um, he, he he also there's a connection to Ray Lancaster, who who is of course director of what's now the Natural History Museum at the time when the last I believe when the Lost World is written in 1912, and he's in the yeah. book. He's in the book itself, and he had he he had something to say about the Mylodon. He was kind of dragged almost reluctantly into this story as well. And and he's Professor Challenger's source in in the in the Lost World. So when he gives Malone the book about prehistoric life, it's it's Ray Lan- it's named explicitly as Ray Lancaster's. Um, extinct animals, though I believe in in the book he describes it as being like a distinguished monograph when in fact it was actually a children's book about dinosaurs, <laughs> so possibly a joke there um, on behalf of Arthur Conan Doyle. But the two guys were friends and um, uh, Lancaster did write to Doyle and suggested you know, uh, further prehistoric animals that he might want to have in a potential sequel to The Last World. I know Lancaster also, he would go on to be like a very anti-spiritualist, kind of like a, yeah. one of those scientific uh, rationalist critics, which Again, considering some of the later uh, Professor Challenger stories, uh, interesting how maybe that may have colored uh, <laughs> some of uh, uh, Conan Doyle's views. Uh, uh, now, there's one other thing I was going to mention with Lancaster, but it's, it's it's the spiritual ether has left my head in that case. <laughs> <laughs> I had a quote here somewhere where he basically says, you know, it's it's just about possible, but not probable that such a thing could be out there. And that seems to have been the extent to which he put himself out there. But, you know, he's saying it's possible, but he, he, his language implies that he's kind of reluctant to do so. Well, as a final kind of latter day continuation of this idea, I watched a documentary from 1998 called Monster Files Mapinguari, Beast of the Amazon. And this featured, so the, 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 the name you, know, you normally hear now when people talk about mystery animals of this kind from the Amazon is Mapinguari. And the man kind of associated with this since the 90s is Dr. David Oren. So I don't know if you've come across much of his doings or if you've seen this particular show. Um, but my last world connection here is that while they're out in the jungle and he's talking about the folklore that he's heard from the local people, he mentions, of course, the Kurupuri, which is the spirit of the Amazon believed in by certain groups of people, which is mentioned by Conan Doyle again in the Lost World as being a potential, you know, humoristic description of, of ultimately what are dinosaurs and prehistoric animals. <laughs> yeah, the, the map in Gore, I've, I've definitely come across that. It seems like it was very uh, big for a while. It's funny how you, know, you have those waves of like for a while it's the Mokele Mabembe, then it's the uh, Orang Pendek, then it's the Mapuring uh, Mapinguri. Uh, there's always like a certain geologic or a geographical area where the cryptids are suddenly become like the leading cryptid in a, a Western view. Uh, I'll say also like uh, for like before kind of doing a lot of research of this, I think some of the stuff with the Mylodon, I was for some reason I thought it was in Northern uh, or uh, 
I say northern South America, you know, uh, like around the Caribbean basin. Uh, but it just strikes me too that there's kind of like a history of like cryptozoology around there too, with the uh, uh, was the Deloitte ape, which is a few years after this, not too long after. But uh, and again, you know, the Lost World is set more uh, in that area, so it is interesting to have kind of like the two regions, you know, one uh, more, uh, I guess you say, hominid-based cryptozoology, the other, uh, I say, more pangolin-based, I suppose. Uh, there is kind of an interesting bit with uh, ancient or uh, animals, uh, extinct animals being rewilded to some degree. Uh, I think it was last year there was a paper from the University of Massachusetts talking about how uh, in Colombia, the drug kingpin uh, Pablo Escobar releases a lot of uh, uh, hippopotami into the rivers and they talked about how they're like inadvertently kind of like uh, taking over the ecological role that some of these like uh, extinct megafauna used to inhabit, you know, like 10,000 years ago in South America. So uh, because thanks to Mr. Escobar, we now have kind of like a uh, uh, inadvertent role model for how some, you know, hypothetical de-extinction might work ecologically <laughs> with uh, some of this, which again, I don't think that was on his mind uh, overall, but it's uh, uh, an interesting Parallel development. <laughs> we need to get him going on Pleistocene Park up in Siberia. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's where it's going to start if it starts anywhere. Right. I think I've gone through all of my all of my notes for this case. Did you have any anything else? No, I think that I think that went through uh, my pages of notes. And for some reason, the, I think this is the longest series of notes I've gotten for uh, one of my episodes here. So <laughs> same. It's, it's the story isn't complicated, but there are so many different people commenting on it. I suppose. Yeah, so there's a lot of connections emerging. I'm not going to apologize for my Lost World connections because listeners should be used to that. <laughs> right. Um, where can people find you online and uh, what are you promoting at the moment? So uh, on Twitter still, you know, as long as it's around. Uh, <laughs> I'm hesitant. to. You know, I, it would be appropriate to move to Mastodon. I'm a little <laughs> hesitant just because it seems very complicated and like I'm, I'm not very technically it's savvy. Okay. And, yeah, I, it's, I, was, so, I, I, I but, checked that. <laughs> but, I, but I will say that uh, you, know, you, can, you can find me on Twitter. That's probably the best place to get in touch with me. 2023 is shaping. I think there's going to be a lot of my work coming out this year. Uh, first off, I think this year, I think early in the year, uh, the Aristia Journal is going to be printing my article on uh, the search for living woolly mammoths, which is expanding. Like, I think it came out to around 33 pages in the draft article format. I think that was my very first appearance on Wide Atlantic Weird. I was kind of working on it there. So that's ostensibly about searching for uh, woolly mammoths. But the article spun off. There's a bit on mound builders in there. There's some bits on Bigfoot, uh, uh, on the Mokele Mbembe. So it became kind of a, a general catch-all view. So I think that's going to come out earlier in the year from the Aristia Journal. Uh, February of 2023, there's an edited volume called American Science Fiction Television and Space Productions and Reconfigurations from Paul Grave McMillan. I have a chapter in there on the political economy of Star Wars, the Clone Wars, which, again, that's one of those very I started writing that in 2018. So it's finally coming out. So some of it may be a bit dated by now, but I had a lot of fun writing that uh, November of 2023, uh, University of Pittsburgh Press putting out a uh, edited volume called Evolutionary Theories and Religious Traditions in the Long 19th Century. I have a chapter in there on how uh, political radicals in the 19th century used astronomy. So if you're interested in, for example, how Marxists interpreted the idea of Martian canals, I cover that. So there's a lot of science fiction in there, too. Again, had a lot of fun working on that. And of course, summer 2023 from Hippocampus Press. The book H.P. Lovecraft and Astronomy When the Stars Are Right, which I co-wrote with Horace Smith, that will be being published. I think with Index, that's going to be over 400 pages. So plenty to talk about with Lovecraft, astronomy, space opera, uh, the legacy of, you know, Lovecraftian science and science fiction. Real excited for that book to finally come out. Uh, had a lot of fun working on that with Horace. But yeah, so this is all the publications I have coming out in 2023. That's amazing. I'm just going to add one thing. Uh, if anyone is interested in reading the the fictional work of uh, Hesketh Pritchard and you're interested in little Flaxman Lowe, uh, a cult detective, uh, my recommendation is for a story called The Story of Bailbrow. 
and I won't spoil it. It's it's ridiculous and over the top and loads of fun and everything that Flaxman Low should be. And if you like your Victorian ghost stories a, a little bit silly and over the top, that's the one to go for. I'll put a link to it in the notes. Yes, I, I got to read that. Yeah, it's, I, doing the research for this, I did think, OK, I got to read some of the Flaxman Low stories. I just reread a lot of uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's kind of like supernatural stories. So I got to get something new now to work on. Wonderful. Eddie, thanks. As always, that was tremendous fun. I learned tons and um, we'll be pleased to have you on next time. My pleasure. Always happy to make my way through the woods to the cabin. Okay, that was it. That was that was loads of fun. I, I learned loads. And if you're wondering what happened to the original skin samples, the myelodon skin samples that kind of set the whole thing off, it was eventually decided that there was something about the caves in which they were discovered, some of them anyway, um, which something about the atmosphere had caused them to be dried out and desiccated, and so had them kind of preserved in a way that made them look like they were relatively recent, when in fact they were, of course, thousands of years old. Uh, okay, so I do have some stuff to, to get to, uh, housekeeping as you might call it. So as always, you can support the show over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide Atlantic. Uh, because it's been a little while since our last episode, I have a number of folks to thank who have done so. Um, a huge thanks to the Architect Opterix who has supported us very generously yet again. Um, also huge thanks to Pete Williams, huge thanks to Horace Alden Smith, um, huge thanks to Anna and huge thanks to Rob Valentine. Now, lots of people wrote nice things, and I don't really have time to read them all out. I do read them. I do appreciate it. I'll just briefly read a little bit of what Anne wrote, because it was interesting. Um, Thanks for the interesting episode about fairies and new hammerism. Also, I appreciate your non-dismissal treatment of the weird, mythological, and fantastic. I mostly make sense of the world through the modern, western, scientific lens. Nowadays, that includes admitting that scientific knowledge is limited and evolving. I think it's great, even exciting. So thanks, Anne, for nice words and some interesting thoughts there. And I'm going to read some comments that we got, some interesting ones from Instagram recently about the episode with Justin Mullis and fairy euhemerism. So thanks to Verstixist, I think I'm saying that right, who wrote, I think euhemerism needs to go on my favourite word list. I remember being absolutely enchanted by the concept when I first read about it, likely in children's fantasy literature, Uh, And it feels amazing 30 plus years on to have a theoretical framework to help me place it. And uh, euhemerism, in case you missed our last episode, is the concept, the the idea that um, all mis... not mysteries, all legends have, uh, you know, come from something real. The idea that actually humans aren't very good at making things up or we're not very inventive and therefore every unusual story um, must be trying to tell us something... Um, distinct and, and concrete and so um, Justin Mullis talked quite a bit about that uh, on our last episode fairies and, and fairy euhemerism I want to say thanks to Ian Wood for sending me on an interesting article about the, the folkloric figure known as the Green Man it was in the midst of a conversation where I was kind of giving the usual story that you'll hear from folklorists that the Green Man was at least named if not sort of invented as late as the 1940s and uh, Ian Wood sent me on an article with some interesting stuff about the roots, the deeper roots of, of the phenomenon. And um, I that was before Christmas. I still haven't had time to go through it and dissect it and check out all of the references and, and original material, which I'd like to do with something of this nature. But uh, big thanks anyway for sending that on. It looks very interesting. Um, I also was talking to Eddie Guimont about um, a comic I'd read called Manifest Destiny. This was several years ago. I think it came out in about... 2016 if not earlier and it's about it's like a fictional comic version of Lewis and Clark's expedition where they make their way across you know the the uh, parts of North America that were taken during the Louisiana Purchase and wouldn't you know they find it absolutely swarming with mysterious creatures and carnivorous plants and prehistoric animals and stuff now remembering this I presumed that this must have been a commentary on the whole a cryptozoological scene at the time as as it would have been uh, conceived by the likes of, of Thomas Jefferson but upon going back to the comic I, I think that's perhaps giving it a little, a little bit too much credit um, there's not even any hints of, of, of that sort of inspiration and I think I think it's just a, a bit of a fun flight of fancy, but that that's Manifest Destiny, if it sounds like the kind of thing you might be interested in. Interesting uh, Twitter conversation recently, um, which I, I butted into, so I must apologize, but uh, Richard Fallon, who spoke on this podcast about um, his, his book about dinosaurs, 
in 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 fiction it's called uh, creatures of another age which i recommend just wrote that um there, there's a minor character from king kong a minor animal which is this kind of strange two-legged li- lizard thing which is seen briefly during one of the jungle scenes and richard talks about a, a short story version of king kong from 1933 which names this thing a polysoro and uh, i was just interested to find out that there was a, a 1933 short story version of kong kong of course alongside the lost world being one of my sort of ongoing obsessions um and richard says that he reckons the short story version is probably an abridgment of the novel now i knew there was a novel version uh, at the time and i knew that there were some extra creatures in it that um, trace their lineage to like earlier versions of the script so in the famous scene where kong is like knocking all the sailors off the off the log bridge um in the original version there was a, a kind of a horned animal a styrocosaurus on the other end of the of the log bridge and that this um was taken out of the film but made or kept its place in in the novel and so you can you can see some of the dna of earlier versions of the script and uh, the account known as pop paleo who i think you should follow as well very good um noted that before it was a to be a styrocosaurus it was to be um a, a prehistoric mammal called an arsenotherium which reminded me of a book i have a picture i have in a book somewhere by willis o'brien the guy who of course did the animation for all the creatures in king kong and uh, with, with that very creature the arsenotherium and um I'm fairly sure that that came from an earlier unfinished production, a rather famous one called Creation, that Willis O'Brien had intended to make with an, an island with dinosaurs on it and um, that were still surviving in the 20th century. And of course, a lot of those ideas and even some of the creatures made their way into King Kong. So just an interesting conversation and um, a little bit of extra background information about the making of Kong is always welcome around here. And finally, uh, I have recently done a recording for the podcast Monster Talk, which is a bit of a long-term goal. That's that's pretty cool. Being as I'm a long-time listener, big fan, and I think um, I think anybody would notice that I've taken a lot of inspiration from from those guys. So it was great, great pleasure to talk to uh, Karen and Blake on the show, and we talked about. Um, a ghost story from the 19th century called The Walsingham Ghosts, which is very dear to me because I know it from the old 70s Osborne Haunted Houses books, which I have mentioned many times on this show. So don't know whether that will be out by the time you're listening to this, but hopefully not too long after. So that's uh, Monster Talk on The Walsingham Ghosts, and I'm looking forward to it. So folks, as always, you can say hi over at Twitter, where I'm at Strange Ireland, or Instagram, where I am wide underscore Atlantic underscore weird so until next time stay safe and thanks for listening we are certain that satanism exists it's the practice of evil and following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object you will prove the existence of the bigfoot or sasquatch by bringing